야 윗집 아줌마랑 IP 타임 아무런 거셨다 드디어 와이파이도 다 끊기고 어 여기 있네 쏟아지면 와이파이를 줄까 그래도 그 돌멩이 때문에 부모님 얼굴도 뵙고 좋더라 건강들 하시고 거리가 없으셔도 귀엽지? 네가 내 대신 얘 과외 선생님 좀 해줘라 영어 대학생인 척 하라는 거야? 너이 좋은 실력으로 왜 믿음이 날 떨어지냐 아이 죽을래 서울대학교 문성위조학과 뭐 이런 거구나 나이 기정이에 수석이 파가겠다 저는 이게 위조나 범죄라고 생각하지 않아요 참으로 시적절하다 풀타임을 앞서면 어떻게 하시는지 Is it okay with you? 이도 완전 예술가 지질인데 그래서 그런 건지 그동안 미술 쌤도 여러 명 바꿔가면서 해봤는데요 아, 제가 사람 하나 킥하고 떠올랐는데 Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. My name is John, and with me, as always, is my co-host Jason. Jason, how are you doing today? I'm fine, John. How are you? I'm good as well. Uh, so today we'll be talking about the 2019 Oscar and Cannes winner film Parasite, directed by Bong Joon-ho. Uh, Bong Joon-ho. I'm sure we're looking forward to that discussion, but before that, as always, uh, we'll talk about what we've watched and read since last time we spoke. So, Jason, uh, why don't you go first? Uh, so, essentially, this week has, has been a busy sort of blogging week and film review interview week. Uh, I posted about the Hanakori Korean Independent Animation Festival and uh, on V-Cinema articles for... Uh, Osaka Asian Film Festival films went live, so you can read an interview with director Yuko Watanabe of Boy Sprouted, and also director Akinori Ikuse of Out of Tokyo 22X, as well as my review of that film. And in terms of what I've watched, it's all been about parasites, so films with um, what I felt were like thematic connections, such as uh, High and Low by Akira Kurosawa, which is a film you recommended. Um, the Graceful Brute by Yuzo Kawashima, um, The People Under the, the Stairs by Wes Craven, and I also watched uh, Armor of God 2, Operation Condor by Jackie Chan, and um, Candyman, the 2019 uh, remake by Nia Da Costa. So that's a remake of uh, Army of God? Oh, uh, Armor of God 2. Armor of God 2? It's, uh, no, it's just a sequel to the first one. No, no, I'm saying The Candyman. Is that a remake of Armor of God 2? Oh, no, no, no. Uh, Candyman's remake of the Candyman movie by Bernard Rose from 1993, I think. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, based on the novel by the Liverpudlian writer who's uh, uh, Clive Barker. Yeah. So, yeah, they were all free on Amazon Prime. 
So I was able, uh, just curious about these films, how they turned out. Um, and yeah, I enjoyed each of the films I watched for different reasons. Candyman was really great at getting the subtext of like um, black trauma throughout the history of America and uh, out into the movie. Um, I wanted to see more of the actual supernatural killer Candyman, uh, but the story itself was uh, really good. Um, Operation Condor, when I watched it as a kid, I felt like it ran a little too long. Like some of the action sequences could have been cut by a couple of minutes. And yeah. The Graceful Brute, People Under the Stairs, uh, and High and Low, each are really good films. I was surprised to hear that High and Low uh, is held uh, not quite in as high regard as Akira Kurosawa's other films, because I felt like there was uh, certain qualities to it that really made it um, brilliant. I think, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure about that. I mean, I think it's, it is held in pretty high esteem. It's not, it doesn't get the publicity that some of his... Um, period films get but i don't think it's i think it's by those who sort of in general it's held as a masterpiece on its own right but it's not as popular like definitely not yeah the the, the sequences in kogane show where um the cops are staking out the uh, guy looking for uh, uh, dope yeah those are just fantastic really gritty and atmospheric totally unlike yeah. um kurosawa's uh, uh normal sort of work and i think it's one of the earlier sort of like major films well, I don't know about the history, but it's also we'll talk more about this. But I think it's also the only one to kind of have car scenes that are not entirely shot with you know like rear projection techniques. So you know like those types of car scenes that are look so fake, where it's clearly a screen behind the the windshield and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But those no, because you can clearly see people getting in and out of the car. Uh, yeah, and the camera like rotating looks. So they're shot, you know, much more realistically, which is uh, I don't getting ahead of myself. So we'll talk about this, I think, in discussion, because I do think that high and low pairs very nicely with Parasite. Uh, and we can talk about whether or not you agree with that or not, but let's not, let's not dwell into that right now. Yeah, okay. Uh, and apart from that, I've started, well, I've unwrapped Phantom Brave on the PSP and we're about to get into that game. So strategy role-playing game is going to probably take me hundreds of hours to complete. So I'm looking forward to playing that. And that's been my media consumption. All right. Uh, so uh, I watched uh, after after our last discussion, after our last episode uh, uh, that was driving my car, I did have time to check out Asako 1 and 2, which well, I really enjoyed it. And I'm, I'm going to go as far as to say that it, like, had I not known that it was the same director, I would have not guessed that it was the same director just from the film itself. Of course, I... In hindsight, or after the fact, I can sort of see some of the similarities, but I think the two are very different. Like any of the pacing issues uh, that I had with Drive My Car, none of that I had with Asako 1 and 2. I thought it was paced perfectly. I thought the story flowed very nicely. I thought it was very interesting. I didn't think any of the scenes were too long or any of the conversations or the dialogues were long or awkward. I would probably agree with you that the ending felt a little bit. Um, I don't want to say unearned, but maybe uh, a bit uh, out of left field. Yeah, it's just a sudden, okay, let's it, resume this. <laughs> yeah, it felt like a happy ending uh, for the sake of a happy ending, but it didn't bother me as much. Like, I, I recognize the flaw, but it's not something that, you know, kind of bothered me that much as to ruin the film. I thought it was an excellent film. I, I recommend to people who have, a, who have the opportunity to check it out. I watched mixed 
from uh, ca- uh, the CAMFest 2022, which is the I forget that what that what that stands for, the Center for um, Asian American Media, Media Festival. Yeah, uh, which is also part of our news, but that's a so it's sort of a documentary, a very short documentary. So I think just under an hour or something. So it's not quite a short film, but it's not quite a feature either. So it's kind of exists in that space in between, and it's about a, an overview of the experiences of mixed race children in America. And it's uh, it's it's a bit strange because it's not it's almost. Uh, a matter of factly, like it reports the positive and the negative, but it doesn't seem to make any larger point, which I'm not exactly sure how I feel about yet, but there's that. I watched, uh, actually just yesterday, I watched the movie from A24, I think, called Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, starring Michelle Yeoh and uh, James Hong and a bunch of other people whose names I can't recall right now. <laughs> um, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis? Jamie Lee Curtis. Oh, Jamie Lee Curtis. That's right. Yeah. So she was. She was actually she, one of the most interesting characters in the film. And um, I'm not exactly sure how I feel about it yet. The only, the most accurate way I can describe it is uh, acid fueled fever dream. Uh, because about ninety percent of it was like that, and the rest of ten percent was a very conventional family drama. And um, uh, I think I think I will go on record saying that it's a very good film and I recommend watching it, but I did find it, it, like a bit sort of simplistic and adolescent. Like it, you know, the, it boils down to respect your family and life is not meaningless. Uh, like a, something that, you know, would like the kind of philosophy that you kind of sort of like, um, that is not very well elaborated. Let's just put it like that. Um, um, but otherwise, I think the special effects, the action were very well done. Uh, Michelle Yeoh is obviously, I don't, I don't think she does her own stunts in this film, but it, what, whoever did it, I think they did a very, very good job out of it. Although maybe she does. I don't know. I, I didn't look it up. It just, just going off her age, I, just, I would find it hard to believe that she did because there's some really impressive stunts in the film. And lastly, I am also in the process of reading War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy. A doorstopper of a book. Which I'm, it's funny because I just last episodes and many times before I've gone on a tirade about how I don't like long books and yet I'm reading the king of big books. <laughs> uh, however, I I would sort of maybe defend myself because I don't think you know films like War and Peace are big books in the same sense that a lot of modern big book big books are because it is you know it, it, by modern standards War and Peace would be thousands and thousands of pages instead of you know 600 or 700 pages what it is because it's it's so dense and it's so filled with characters and events that happen i mean it it covers pretty much the entire uh napoleonic uh, russian french war uh and it's filled with many characters many events many sort of subplots and plot lines whereas uh, to give another example of a recent big book that i read uh just a few weeks ago or no a couple months ago the memory called empire which is a similar sized book it's mostly just you know, the journey of a single character uh, through a failing empire. And it's, you know, that that certainly book did not need to be 600 pages, whereas I think War and Peace does need to be 600 pages. Yeah. Or however, how, I don't think it's 600 pages. I think it's a little bit more. I'm, I, and I should clarify that I'm actually listening to an audiobook of it, not, not actually reading it, which makes it a little easier. How do you find um, uh, taking in all that information compares when you're reading it? 
compares with reading it. I think for for books uh, of this type, where you know there's sort of a lot of plot and a lot of dialogue, and you know the the actual details of the prose are not as important. I think it works very well for other more pro- stories that. Uh, prose is very like carefully crafted and they're a, a bit more i don't want to say literary because that's that's uh, gives sort of like the wrong connotation but where prose sort of like the the individual sentences matter more i would say audiobooks are not that great yeah uh, but for sort of epic stories where you know you if you don't catch sort of like the nuance of every sentence is not uh i think audiobooks work, work fantastically well yeah okay as long as you don't get too distracted, sometimes that's that can be a trap where you put on put on your headphones and listen to audiobooks while doing something else, and that something else takes over your attention. It has to be you. You still have to pay attention, so that's that's something. Yeah, I think that'll be the only way I'll be able to um, get through uh, works by Dostoevsky and so forth. Yeah, well, so Dostoevsky is a, an author who I actually not sure uh, audiobooks would work. So especially for like something like Notes from the Underground. Well, that's one uh, that I did try uh, listening yeah. to via YouTube. So that's that's a very dense book, and I think that you actually do have to read it and sort of take your time with it and, and kind of wrestle with text. Fortunately, it's not very long. I think for something like The Brothers Karamazov, who it's also a very dense book, but maybe you can get away with just listening to it as an audiobook as long as you make sure you pay attention. Uh, there are some parts of that that are very dense. I, I, Dostoevsky is one of my favorite authors, and I sort of always kind of have favored him in uh, over Tolstoy. And actually, I don't like Tolstoy very much, but War and Peace is just something that I've never, I've never read. So at least I wanted to read it. It, it Tolstoy has a, a more of a soap opera like quality to him than some of the other Russians like Dostoevsky, like Chekhov, like um, um, even Gogol, who is also another excellent Russian. Uh, author who wrote shorter works, and I also recommend Gogol a lot for those who want to get into Russian literature, but maybe want to avoid the sort of like the giants in terms of uh, content. Okay, you guys heard it here first. Yeah, of course. Uh, but I, <laughs> I think that's uh, that's my media consumption, uh, sort of, uh, you know. Uh, but uh, that's I think that's that's it for this section. Why don't we jump into the news for this week? So what's uh Jason can you tell us what's going on uh that uh it might be noteworthy this week So yeah a news item you put down is that Camfest 2022 is up and running and it runs from the 12th of May to the 22nd and it's going to be online and it sounds like uh you've actually watched one uh was it to review for V Cinema It is yes Okay so uh yeah uh, would you be able to talk more about Camfest 2022 well, no, I, it happens every year. I don't know much about it. I'm not sure if I'll review more films for it. I've, I've been busy lately. I'll try to get one more, but it's it's just I'm not I'm not sure what. But it is a sort of a a, a festival that happens every year that focuses a lot on Asian American films as opposed to Asian cinema. So it 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 covers the entire spectrum of sort of Asian countries and cultures. But it is that sort of like focus on on Asian American content. All there are. Uh, actually, properly Asian films. I think one of them was um, that biopic that was also at the Osaka Film Festival. I forget the the name of the singer. Oh, I saw Anita. Anita. So that's I th- I'm I'm fairly sure that I saw that there. So they do have some coverage of proper Asian cinema, but I think the focus is very much on Asian American cinema. 
Okay, yeah. Like, uh, what I had a brief look at the festival website, and they've got um, one about, uh, what's it, blurring the color line about Chinese students in the deep south of uh, post-war America. Looks yeah. quite interesting. Yeah, a lot of documentaries. There were a lot of documentaries. I, I don't think it's documentary-focused particularly, but for some reason this year, there were a lot of those. Yeah, there's also, uh, I do recognize um, outside of Anita, there's also Coffin Homes um, by Fruit Chair. Yes, I uh, saw that too, yeah. And uh, there's one film, it's a short, and it's from Japan. Uh, it's in the Spectral Drivers uh, uh, program, and it's called Pain of the Anonymous uh, by Daichi Amano. And... Uh, yeah, it's uh, a woman. Uh, she's quit her teaching job and uh, she becomes a content moderator for like a social media company. And it has like profound psychological effects, which sort of links into why she um, quit her teaching job. And it's quite uh, uh, sort of subtle, but affecting short. And uh, yeah, probably says a lot about the age that we live in as well, the sort of like how um, online content uh, can be harmful to people. So those are the only two titles I uh, recognize. Okay. Uh, so what's the next item in the news? So uh, Japan Society uh, are hosting a special season called Visions of Okinawa. And it runs from May 14th to June 3rd. And um, there are free films available to stream. Uh, one of them is only available in North America. That's Paradise View. And the other one, um, I'm going to attempt to pronounce um, them. Uh, Mot- Moto Shinkakaran... <laughs> no. And uh, Asia is one. Those two are actually available to stream globally. Uh, so people around the world can watch those two films. And you can buy them as a bundle. And uh, they're like rare films um, from a special collective of documentary filmmakers who are working at Okinawa and sort of looking at the ties that the um, prefecture had to the rest of Asia. And uh, yeah, they look at the history of like uh, immigration from Taiwan and um, Korea and sort of Japanese imperialism. And uh, yeah, like I said uh, just now, they're like the kind of rare films. So this is a great opportunity to see them. And uh, this uh, special feature has been put on um, to mark the 50th anniversary of the reversion of Okinawa back to Japanese control uh, from American control. So okay. yeah, that's that's it for that news coverage. All right. Uh, so I think I think that's it for our news segment of the episode. I, and, I, and we can jump straight into the, our main discussion of the film Parasite and everything related to it. So like I mentioned in the introduction, today's episode is the film Parasite. And I think because our uh, – and I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit, Jason, so I apologize in advance. Uh, but <laughs> I, uh, I, since this season's theme is award winners, I feel like we should start with you know, what, what awards did this film win that made it that qualified it for for sort of fitting with our theme so uh, in addition to the plot summary i would also ask you very kind kindly to tell us what awards did this uh, film uh, w- uh, won and why is it uh, not worthy 
So uh, it's more a question of what awards didn't this win? Exactly. <laughs> in terms of international awards, um, it won the Palme d'Or at the 2019 Cannes Film Festival, which made it the first South Korean film to win. And then it went on to win Best Foreign Language Film at the Golden Globes, um, Outstanding Performance by a Cast at the Screen Actors Guild Awards, Best Original Screenplay and Best Film Not in the English Language at the BAFTA Film Awards, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Original Screenplay, Best International Feature Film at the Academy Awards. And so Parasite became the first non-English language film in Academy Awards history to win Best Picture. And it became the first South Korean film to be nominated for Best Picture uh, and the second East Asian film to receive a nomination for Best Picture since Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yeah, I was I was almost sorry to interrupt you, but I was almost certain that... Uh... Woman in the Dunes had also received a Best Picture nomination, but it, after double checking, it only received Best Director nomination. So that's the 1964 film by Hiroshi Teshigahara, a uh, very part of a sort of like the middle part of a very famous trilogy by him. Excellent film, one of my favorites. But I, I sort of for some reason I had thought that it had also been nominated for a Best Picture, but apparently not. Yeah, I think the uh, the last Asian film to win uh, Best Foreign Language Picture was uh, Departures, I believe. And that was uh, 2008. Oh, 2009, sorry. What about uh, Shoplifters? Shoplifters? Did that win an Academy Award? I think so. I don't believe so. I have to have I, I think I think we've had this exact discussion before, <laughs> and I can't remember <laughs> yeah. who ended up winning the argument. So... It's, uh, you're right. Oh my God. It was God. nominated for an Oscar. It was nominated and it did not win. Oh. But it did, uh, win. Roma. Uh, it was, it was the same year as Roma. That's why. Okay. Yeah. It did win an award at the Cannes Film Festival. Yes. So it won the Palm Door, which is like, um, I think it's like, that was 2018. So it was a year before Parasite. Yeah, and it's it's funny because I think like the last one that won was Departures, which is you know a very nice film, but very also kind of forgettable to be honest. Yeah, you know I enjoy, I enjoy Departures. I've seen it a couple of times. It's a very you know feel good film, and I think it it handles sort of like the subject of death uh, and uh, and estranged family relations very well. But it's not you know it, it's not the kind of film that kind of you remember that is going to like go down in history as a as a masterpiece or anything like that. Or even a game changer like Parasites. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Uh, the competitions that year were the Batter Meinhof Complex, uh, German film, Waltz with Bashir, an Israeli film, and I, I personally, I think both of those are better than Departures, uh, but not obviously not order so matter to better. But I think Waltz with Bashir may have been like the better film, uh, and there's also the Class, which I haven't seen, is a French film, and. Uh, Revanche, an Austrian film, which I haven't seen either of those. And we'll talk about all that. We'll talk about the awards that Parasite uh, uh, won. We'll obviously, like we did last time, we'll talk about whether it deserved it or not, whether or not it deserved to actually break that barrier of uh, winning the non-foreign categories. But before we get into any of that, why don't you go ahead, Jason, and continue giving us what the film is about? So uh, to give a brief summary of the plot, uh, it takes place in present-day Seoul, South Korea, and we watch as the lives of two families from different ends of the socio-economic spectrum intersect. This happens when the working-class Kims work their way up from their semi-basement home to inveigle themselves into the domestic service of the rich Park family in their hilltop mansion. 
How they do it is the subject of black comedy that turns into horror, as the Kims discover they weren't the first to infiltrate the lives of the parks. Uh, uh, thank you for the plot summary, Jason. So, obviously the film came out only a few years ago, three years ago, I think, as of, as of the time of this recording. And I think, we'll obviously, we've talked about it before. Both of us saw it around the time that it came out, maybe a little later. Uh, I was lucky enough to see it in, in the theaters, but why don't you tell me what, what was your experience watching it for the first time three years ago, and what was your experience watching it again in preparation for this episode? So uh, I watched it in 2020. I think it was just after it's BAFTA wins, and it has a, a extended cinema run uh, due to the win. And um, I was due to travel to Japan a few weeks later, so um, I went to see the film with my mother. And uh, yeah, we both thoroughly uh, enjoyed it because we went in blank, not knowing anything about the plot, um, deliberately avoiding um all details and reviews. And uh, yeah, it's one of those films where it's got so many, um, like the initial plot of the Kims is so audacious and you have so much fun watching them infiltrate the Park family's home. And then it has a number of twists, which just are increasingly more breathtaking than the last. And uh, it was a really impressive um, film. I think at the time I didn't rate it as highly as Memories of Murder, and um, which re still remains my number one Bong Joon-ho film. And I, I still feel that way, although I appreciate um, I'm now having to sort of watch it much more deeply uh, and look at sort of subtext and context and whatnot. I appreciate all the details that have gone into it, even if I'm not an expert in sort of um, Korean society, I can see like uh, different aspects of the socioeconomic conditions of the both of both families and how nuanced they are in the depi uh, depicted in the film. And so, like uh, rewatch has proved very, very rewarding because I've been able to get much more depth from it as opposed to just watching it as entertainment. Yeah. So uh, my story is not too different. So I watched it. I think I watched it in 2019, long before he was nominated for any awards. And I think I'm. I can definitely say that I immediately after coming out of the theaters, I said, okay, this is going to win the best foreign language at the Oscars. I was, of course, it had already won the con, uh, the, the, the award at con. So it was, that wasn't that, you know, clairvoyant of a prediction, uh, but I did not. And in fact, I think I was on record. I have been on record saying that it's not going to win, you know, the, the non-foreign, the non, uh, the domestic categories at the Oscars. And of course I turned out to be wrong about that. But I think I I rewatched it, and of course at the time I I, I even wrote a review about it for V Cinema. I obviously rated it highly, and I did um, I did watch it this time with the intention of finding something wrong with it because I sort of I hinted at this last time that I am going to try to really put put these films these uh, this season the films that are you know high award winners to the test and really see uh, put them to high scrutiny. And I did try to look at. I watched it with a specific intention of finding flaws with it, and I couldn't. I, I I had a hard time. That doesn't mean I didn't find any flaws with it, but I I I really had a hard time not liking it as much as the first time or the, even the second time that I saw it. I do think that it is a, a an excellent film, a flawless film. I I do have one problem with it, and it's exactly the same problem that I had the first time. I immediately the first time I watched it, and it's the same sort of criticism that I put in my review at the cinema for it. And it's, I think it's also the same thing that I might've mentioned in this podcast when we talked about memories of murder, when we talked about other uh, Bong Joon-ho films, how I think 
how I think this film is a bit too on the nose, a bit too heavy-handed. And I, I like that you use the word subtext because I don't think this film has that much subtext. It has a little bit, but I think it's all text. It tells you exactly what it's about. It's about class struggles and it kind of spells it out as clearly as you can. And and that's, I think, I never like when that happens. I, I do like the film to be a little bit more clever about what it is what it is about. But I think other than that, is just just as enjoyable, just as fun, just as shocking as the very first time that I saw it. Yeah, I, well, in terms of class struggles, I don't think you'll get anything as obvious as uh, Bong Joon-ho's Snowpiercer, which came out in 2014. Y- yeah, but so so that's right. And I think maybe he picked up a few bad habits in America because I've noticed this is a trend in American cinema more more than anything else in the last maybe five years. Like if you look at the award winners, it's been, you know, all about in your face, like a marriage story. That was a big popular film the same year as Parasite. And that was also very much in your face. No subtext, not at all. The film that won the Oscars this year, Coda, again, a very, very open story about deaf people in America. We can talk about the merits of the film itself, doesn't doesn't matter, but it is, you know, very much in your face about what it is about. Nothing to hide. And I think maybe Bon Joon Ho picked up some of those habits and kind of uh made an excellent film, but perhaps didn't do as great of a job at kind of making it a little bit clever in what it's about. And I don't think that was uh his MO before that, because if you look at some of his previous films like Mother like Barking Dogs Never Bite, or even maybe Memories of Murder, it's not as, I think it's, you know, Memories of Murder has a lot of subtext about the state of Korean government at the time, but that's not the focus of the film. The focus of the film is the story, the detective story, and everything else is subtext, whereas Parasite is almost flipped. Everything is about class struggle, and the rest is sort of almost helper helper scenes to kind of advance his sort of like themes yeah within memories of murder uh what's implicit uh through the depictions of authority is like uh the uh looking at sort of the dictatorship of korea whereas um parasite has this wonderful visual metaphor of like uh the, the rich people living on top of the hill side of a fantastic mansion and uh like the poor people at the very bottom of the hill living amongst the uh, filth, essentially. And, uh, but, um, not even though I'm not an expert in sort of, uh, Korean society, um, I could still, there's still a lot of nuance to the way the various characters are depicted. So, uh, I felt like that nuance moved the characters away from being, um, a parodic or, or being cliched. Well, I think there is a lot of nuance in the in the family, in the sort of like the poor family in in Song Kang Ho uh, and his wife and his daughter and his son family. But I think the rich the rich people might as well be mustache twirling villains because that's kind of how uh, they are depicted. And I'm I'm really glad you mentioned the height because that's kind of precisely the reason why I suggested high and low because I think that I haven't seen any official statements about this, but I. Bon Joon-hoon lifted that straight out of high and low because that's kind of central to high and low, the high difference in the in the rich and the poor in that Kurosawa film. And it's and Bon Joon-ho, I am in my own mind, I am convinced that he watched that while writing the script of Parasite. And there's a lot of other things that I think 
he takes out of high and low. I mean, the films are very different. I'm not saying that they are that it's a remake or anything close to it, but I think the ways that Kurosawa treats the themes of class in high and low, Bon Joon Ho took those and kind of used them in his own kind of like depiction of the same themes. Well, I, I actually had to laugh at High and Low, where they showed where um, um, Toshiro Mifune's character's house actually is on top of the hill, overlooking all the peasants, essentially, like a like a, a medieval lord, a Sengoku period lord. That felt like too on the nose. Um, no, precisely. So, and that's the, the most on the nose thing about High and Low. Uh, and I think sort of like, but other other some other things, for example, the criminal, the crime. Uh, sort of aspect of it is is again not not exactly the same, but it's that the other. I think there is a line in Parasite where a very famous line, in my opinion, where the wife is saying uh, how sh- she would be nice if uh, if she was rich. Yeah, they can afford to be nice because they have money. Yep, it, but Toshiro Mifune says ex- almost exactly the same thing to his wife when she's trying to be noble. And says, "Who cares about the money? We need to save that kid because that's the right thing to do. I I can live in poverty. I don't mind." And he says to her, "Because you've never had to, right? You can afford to be noble when you've never known what it is to be poor." So I think I think those those are sort of like very similar ideas uh, that the concept uh, that the sort of like the uh, two films do. But I think the the difference between the two is that whereas you know the 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 rich in parasite are not too different from the rich the rich in eyes wide shut if you've seen that movie i uh, know i haven't okay so it's this very very much this very almost separate species sort of that this like very very harsh separation whereas in high and low the i think the rich are you know obviously the the most of the rich in high and low are bad people, but Toshiro Mifune is obviously the hero of the movie. He cannot, he's at a point in his career where he can't really play a bad guy. But I do think that that's, I think that's a more powerful depiction, in my opinion. That's where the nuance come, because I don't think in real life that the rich see themselves as mustache twirling villains that they wake up saying, how I'm going to oppress the lower classes today. <laughs> I, don't th- I don't think how that's a, re- a realistic depiction of like this kind of, uh, like, sort of like grim aspect of the psychologically speaking i do think that the rich like i do think that a guy like elon musk or jeff bezos they don't think they've done anything wrong they think very highly of themselves they are the heroes of their own story even though they you know they leave out conveniently leave out a lot of stuff about how their success is possible due to sort of due to sort of like an unfairness in society they don't necessarily see that i don't think they are as aware it's in the i do think that Someone like Jess Bezos, at least initially, or someone like Elon Musk, think that they work really hard, they had great ideas, and that immediately rewarded them to being in the position that they are today. And that's exactly Mifuna's character. He, he thinks that his entire, his entire fortune is due to his hard work and his nobility, and even though he, because he does the right thing and all that. And Kurosawa almost lets us believe that, except there is one throwaway line in in high and low where it we find out that he's actually it was the dowry from his marriage that that actually enabled him to do to make his fortune and it's and it's 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 five seconds of screen time that we get that but i think that's i think the genius of Kurosawa that gives us this story very much from the point of view of of the rich people that uh that you know they are the heroes of the story and they the, the entire police force mobilized to help this one guy and we kind of 
follow, but then he throws these little nuggets of of things, and that like the final scene is a I think is a big sort of like revelation of of kind of like how this guy built up the sort of like the entire resentment of oppression that is not specifically Mifune's fault. He is just a guy who just locked out in the system. But the guy, the the poor person, the, was played by a wonderful actor whose name I forget, who was also in Tampon Paul. I don't know if you've seen that movie. Uh, I thought so. Yeah. Yes, he was. A, he's a, he also plays uh, the older guy in that one with the cowboy hat. Uh, but anyway, he's taken the resentment from the, sort of like the system and kind of condenses it into uh, focuses into Mifune's character, and that's one who he wants to sort of like ruin. And I think that sort of very complex dynamics, I think that says a lot more about sort of like systems of oppression and real world. This almost sort of like straightforward depiction of class in Parasite, which is, I think, powerful and shocking. But I, I just it doesn't have sort of like the same effect, in my opinion, that something well, like High and Low I, does. I had a totally different reading of Toshiro Mufuni's character in High and Low in the sense that like, yes, he used his wife's dowry to make his fortune, but he also, he also rose from the top. He knows what poverty is like. He rose from the bottom. He knows what poverty is like. There's that sequence where he's like, get me my toolkit so I can help the cops, you know, put, um, like tracking device in the briefcase. You see that flash of like, this is a guy who's had to use his hands. He's, he was probably demobbed from the army and, uh, had nothing. And got involved in this shoe company. And like, because he's experienced poverty, he's so reluctant to actually give up his money in the film. And it's a really, really tough struggle for him to do that. And I, th- I think we're in agreement here. And I-, I think that you can make the argument that the doctor, the criminal, is exactly the same. Is someone who experienced co- poverty. He may be very skilled in what he does, he may be very skilled doctor and there may be a thousand or thousands of other people like Mifune who grew up in poverty have are very skilled very intelligent people but they never got that break that Mifune got they never got that sort of like initial kick from a rich wife and I think that's what the point that Kurosawa is trying to make uh because we I mean that we have myriads of examples of the cops complimenting the intelligence of this of this criminal and he is a doctor it's like an intern Intern, yeah. So someone who's about to be a doctor, but you know, he's he get we get a throwaway line that his mother died last year. He doesn't elaborate on that. He says, "You, I, I'm not interested in in your pity or in your self analysis." He's just, you'll never understand. Or, or even though Mifune may have come from the same, from the same, it is purely circumstances that have nothing to do with his skill that enable him to. At least, that's one possible interpretation. I'm not completely trying to make the point that skill doesn't matter in someone's success. Of course it does. But it, it, it is what separated Mifune from the thousands of others that he looks down upon quite literally in the, in the positioning of his house. And at the end, he's brought low and humbled. Exactly, exactly. But again, again, making again the same point, extremely understated. And I realize that we're talking more about high and low than Parasite. <laughs> so we'll get back to Parasite, of course. Uh, but I think it makes... He's fine. With all the doom and gloom that that we get proceeding to the final scene, that he is ruined and his the money comes too late and all that, he is fine. He's still well dressed. His hair is gelled. He's you know he's working at a smaller company, but you know he's still doing what he wants. He's still not starving by any means. He's still probably 
we, we, I think we can estimate that he probably still has a nice apartment. He doesn't have the, the villa at the top of the hill that he had, but still fine. He's probably going to get high back up there. And, and Kurosawa doesn't spell any of this out. And I think the contrast to Bong Joon-ho, where the final scene in Bong Joon-ho is, I think, very interesting, but also very on the nose, where we get the, the dream of the son, whose name I'm, I'm blanking, right? I'm not, oh, you have it written down here. Thank you. So Kevin, right? Uh, so you're making my, my job a lot easier. But Kevin is dreaming of this, of this life that he will become rich. Yeah, purchase the house and be reunited. Exactly. I mean, the scene ends with him like in, same, same, in the same semi-basement apartment. It's almost as though Bong Joon-ho is walking to the screen and, and saying, nah, that's never going to happen. Uh, I, there's no ambiguity here. He's foolish to even dream that. And it's, it's not spelled out, but I think it's very heavily implied. Well, yeah, like the villain in this film, it's not so much the parks, it's the system which has put the Kims in their position. And, you know, it's created this um, situation where, uh, like, they they commit sins, essentially, to in order to give themselves a boost up the social ladder. And at the end of the film, it's like the system continues like kevin will keep perpetuating um what uh, will try to keep perpetuating the sins of the system by attaining money and uh, moving up into the next class and perhaps looking down on others yeah and i think there's almost no doubt about that about that the villain is the system not the parks themselves because the parks are depicted almost as idiots really i mean they fall like the mother is literally said to be slow or simple Simple, is simple, yeah. Simple, exactly. Like the 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 son is. I I don't even know what to describe them. The the daughter is just you know obsessed with her boy toys. I just felt like it wasn't it wasn't as sort of cliched as it could have been because after watching the people under the stairs, which is very 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 under on the nose, it's kind of like the the main villains in that film are essentially like a Republican family. They're racist. They're misogynist. They. Um, Christian fundamentalists and they're exploiting people in the ghetto. Um, in Parasite, they are actually quite sympathetic. Their worst crime, you could argue, is like selfish empathy and naivety. Like, absolutely. I'm not. Again, I'm I'm focusing on the flaw, but to put it in perspective, it's a minor flaw. It's not. It's not nowhere near as cliche as it could have been. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not making that point. But I think it is more cliche. Than I would have liked it to be. I think okay, that is yeah. that is yeah. what my point is. Just to to set to set the record straight. But yeah, so the father is the only one who is probably the least naive, as you pointed out, of them. But he's still like we never know what he does. He's just kind of like sits in meetings and rates products for some reason. Well, he comes across as like a Elon Musk type of character. Like he doesn't actually create anything. He's just like a figurehead. Exactly, and it, like. So the other, I think, on the nose cliche thing is like sort of like the whole thing about the smell, which is, I think, a very heavy handed metaphor, especially in the end where, you know, his son is sort of like dying and there's like a couple people there sort of like bleeding out. And he like spends like a whole couple of seconds recoiling of the smell, which I think is too heavy handed. Like that has like that. I, I don't know. I like I, I get it. I get it. It's, it's something it's not out of the blue. Uh, Bong Joon-ho build that up for the entire film. Yeah, that, yeah, like I I have I'm in agreement with that. It's kind of like in the heat of the moment you ignore everything and you you essentially just grab the keys and go. 
Exactly. Yeah, but again, I, I'm sort of, I also get it because it's, I mean, the film operates in sort of like this slightly absurdist level where, you know, not, again, like, like, like that's why I brought up Eyes Wide Shut because the family is a little bit of, you know, like almost non-human in their sort of like isolation and sort of like separation from the common folk. Yeah, well, there's an interesting, uh, they, they form an interesting um, sort of parallel or mirror family to the Kims in the sense that they are, they are, there's a lack of love and empathy between each family member. They, they're isolated in scenes. They rarely interact with each other. And there's something going on with the mother and father, like um, I've read that perhaps it's an arranged marriage or something, because Mr. Park has this whole thing, like Song Kang-ho's character will say, you love your wife, and Mr. Park will give him a, uh, will give him a look. Like it's an, an inappropriate comment to make, and he'll answer, he'll answer like, yeah, sure, I love my wife. But like behind that comment, there's uh, the meaning's like stop being stupid. We're just in a relationship. So I felt like there's um, perhaps the aspect of an arranged marriage there, and so that makes the wife's position quite um, precarious. Because what is she bringing to a relationship if she goes back to her family uh, after a divorce? Is, is she going to be able to survive? Is she going to get anything? Because Korea is a, a, a society where uh, men tend to dominate things, and things get passed down to the like to men in the family, and so yeah. And the kid, the kids actually do like uh, the Kim family. So that there's a, a bit more nuance there. It's not too cliched. So one thing that I I did kind of enjoy was how uh, that I think there was a bit of subtext. Uh, there was. I make the point that I think most of this film is text, not subtext. But I think one part where I think there is a little bit of a interesting dynamic is how the poor venerate the rich in the film. Yeah. Uh, like the the woman, the previous housekeeper, is obsessed with the architect that he used to own. The she speaks of him as though he was some kind of saint or something. And uh, the the guy in the dungeon, her husband, uh, sort of almost has this sort of almost ritualistic admiration for for both the architect and Mr. Park. Well, he's got uh, the pictures pasted on the wall, like uh, a dear leader. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and of course, the Kim family themselves, they also seem to develop this sort of like very brief, but, you know, strong admiration for the Park family. Like, you know, the son obviously wants to marry, which is like a delusional thing from the start. Like it's like almost said for laughs. Yeah, he says, now that we're daydreaming, like, we could uh, live in this house. Yeah, but, uh, but yeah, there's this sort of, like, admir- like, sort of, like, this veneration of the rich, even though there's, again, the film is, I, has, portrays them as very naive, and says the wife is simple, the kids are delusional, or whatever. There's nothing, uh, arguably, there's nothing about them that makes them admirable. Uh, they are sympathetic to a degree, I think, to the audience, but I don't think there is anything that makes them likable to that degree for the other characters, other than they're just employed by them. And they're employed through tricks and, and subterfuge rather than anything that they've done honestly. Well, yeah, that's just the effects of the system telling the Kims that, oh, these are like Mr. Park is the Ubermensch and uh, this is the idealized family life. And it's also another thing that I did enjoy was how comfortable and how planned out these uh, scams are. 
and it like you almost get the sense that this is kind of a career for them. Like they've done it multiple times. This isn't their first rodeo. Yeah. Uh, well, this is what like the Kim family probably commit the biggest crimes, the biggest sins in the film. But there's something admirable in how ingenious they are. But they're forced to become that ingenious and they're forced to become that criminal because of the system. There's mention that Kevin's failed his university entrance exams four times. And like there was a point where I was like, well, why don't you just turn your attention to Jessica, the daughter, who's clearly, she's the one of the vigor that Kevin doesn't have. Like she's so, um, audacious in her plots and the way she's able to cross social boundaries and put the mother and the housekeeper and the driver in their place. Like, She's got so much going for her. Yeah, and I like I like how sort of like again it goes back to the sort of like the veneration of the rich because he goes from don't like he tells his father, don't look that this as fraud. This is just down payment because I will really do this next year. I'll really get my diploma. Uh, so it's like this is just like, you know, having the paper before I'm gonna actually do it. But then he kind of his plan changes. He says, Well, I got I'll just marry this uh the daughter of Mr. Park, and that's, I don't have to worry about school anymore. Yeah, and the father, um, he's, he becomes very sympathetic, uh, to the family he's driving, chauffeuring around. And he also feels, uh, some sense of guilt towards the previous chauffeur and what happened to him. It's quite interesting that the women in the Kim family remain cynical throughout the film and they, and they uh, keep a much more clear eyed view of what the parks are and how they can exploit them. Yeah, so the, um question for you do you think that the basement apartment is their apartment or did you think that was just like the result of a previous subterfuge that they've just kind of gotten in there i think that's genuinely their apartment like they're okay. a working class family um so working class area and they're struggling to find jobs yeah okay uh, i wasn't sure if it was just like there were just squatters there as well and so somehow they were hiding from somewhere or something like that i don't think i don't think there's anything in the film to suggest that but i was just wondering it well yeah it, like, like you said it, like the the way they infiltrate the park family you can imagine that they've done this pre previously it's so skillful and that it would be interesting if you had a, a series of films where you see them go from one abode to the other upgrading each time but um i think uh like there's been comments that uh but in the film that the father's like tried multiple jobs chauffeuring working for um Oh, was it a Taiwanese cake factory? Um, oh, what's the cake? Castella cake. Yeah, but I wasn't sure if it was a cake shop or something. And like, I got the sense that that sounded like a business that he tried owning and lost it to like debt or mortgage or something. Like, I didn't. It's something that he worked in. He's he's going from sort of service job to service job. And later in the film, the housekeeper's husband says, like, he tried um the Castella cake business and he failed and he was in such debt he had to go into hiding so that's connections made again that's another thing that i don't think the film tries very hard to hide is that there's you know mr park mr kim and the guy the the basement guy the housekeeper's husband they're the same person uh hiding from the law hiding from someone pretty much left even explicitly says it as his People like when they talk about Morse code, like he, he the, the the guy, the husband of the housekeeper, immediately assumes that that Mister Kim knows Morse code because he says, "Our generation, we know this, right?" So they're they're. I mean, there's multiple points in the movie where they're sort of equivocated the two the two men. Yeah. Uh, I props 
so like speaking of the naivety of the of the parks i'm props to the girl from in the end who's actually she saves yes she's carrying him on her back kevin yeah that was i mean it's like a a split second of a shot but but, uh, she's a 14 year old girl and she's (laughs) yeah and it is like that was like like that was he got hit in the head twice with the rock i mean that was not i'm surprised he survived those are fatal blows I'm, I'm surprised convinced. he, especially after his father stabbed his son, his her brother, uh, her father. Like Kevin's father stabbed her father, and she's carrying him, you know, to safety. Presumably, she saved his life. I think we can, I, we can reach that much. That's, uh, that was quite something. Yeah, yeah. I tried to think back. Um, yeah, like the. I think one of the biggest tragedies in this film is like the working class families are at war with each other and like the kims inflict until like the finale the kims are inflicting massive damage on working class fellow working class people and it's kind of like being poor uh being in a system like that um sort of really sharpens that sort of selfishness and that's sort of self-preservation that you're gonna kick people off a rung of a ladder just to climb up yourself yeah uh well i mean again i think that's i think another thing that like sort of is also depicted in in high and low with the the sort of like the the underground society not only just the main criminal the doctor or the the intern the medical intern but the whole sort of like there's a, apparently a whole alley dedicated to to heroin addicts in that movie and they say like they don't look out for each other like one of them just goes into a room and dies and nobody seems to care uh, and I think that sort of like exactly the same phenomenon is observed in uh, high and low. There's, I mean, in Parasite, sorry. Uh, there's also, I, I'm not sure if this is intentional, sort of like the whole Indian theme uh, to the film, which is, I think is another connection to high and low because the same thing happens in high and low, except now they're cowboys. But I, in the US, obviously, when you depict, depictions of Native American carry a lot of subtext and a lot of context that is sort of like part of the culture. But I'm not sure if that translates to Korea, to South Korea. So I'm not sure if Bon Joon-ho inclusion of like sort of like the Indian play, the kid playing Indians sort of carries any meaning other than it's just something to give the kid to, to do, to have to do in the film. I think it's probably uh, like... And reading sort of press notes for Snowpiercer, he was aware of like, um, uh, oh, who is the actress in Snowpiercer, the one that's chasing after his son? Um, I don't remember any actors from Snowpiercer. Uh, John Hurt, Tilda Swinton. Uh, Tilda Swinton, yeah. Octavia Spencer. So in press oh, notes, okay. Bong Joon-ho um, talks about a scene where Octavia Spencer's being beaten. He's like... Um, he wanted. He he had in mind like the Rodney King um, beating. So I think there's some awareness on his part. But in terms of the film worlds, like the parks, they probably just like the imagery of Native Americans. They're not too interested in the history of it. Yeah. Well, no. I'm I'm saying if if yeah if Bon Joon Ho intended anything by it, or if it was just like just for imagery's uh, sake. But I think it's uh, just like imagery's sake, like kids go through a phase where they want to play cowboys and Indians. Right? Yeah. A separate note, it's it's kind of amazing when you think that half the film it takes place in a twenty four hour period or even less. From that night where they stuck inside all the way to the next day. That's like a like a less than twenty four hour period. And that's like pretty much half the film. Hmm. And um, but the other thing I, I remember the very first time where I watched it in the theater, there was that scene where the kid is playing out in the rain, 
and uh, the wife asks, uh, oh, what if the tent, or one of them asks, uh, is the tent going to be okay in the rent? And one of them replies, oh, um, it's okay because I, I bought that tent in America or something, or it came from America. And the entire audience laughed. And that's because, of course, in America, there's this joke, this ongoing joke that nothing is really made in America or things that are made in America are low quality products. Uh, but I don't think that was intended for a joke by Bong Joon-ho. I think, you know, Koreans genuinely venerate things that are made in the West. Probably that class of people, especially like learning English, uh, having connections with people in America. Exactly. carries cultural cachet with it, which is why you see the Park family use English in everyday conversations. It's kind of like the cliche for like English language speakers would be if someone used French uh, it would seem egregious in everyday conversation, but the use of French is like a way of showing off one's intelligence or absolutely, culture. yeah, exactly. So, the, but that's that's what I sort of my point was that I think the sort of like there's there's a bit of a cultural difference about how sort of like someone else perceives a scene of the film in a way that it was not necessarily intended in sort of like the context of the culture that it was written for. It's uh, just it just adds to the milieu of the Park family, so it's like yeah. we're really inserted into the lives of these rich and wealthy people in Seoul. Yeah, and there's also like the same thing where he just throws out like when he's trying to pawn uh, his sister as an art teacher, he just mentions some random university like Illinois State University or whatever. I forget uh, what it is, and she immediately like lights up as soon as she hears that like name Illinois. And I don't think the university that he mentions is like a particularly well known university or anything like that. Uh, uh, or it's like you know, okay. I mean, a, a lot of state schools in America are pretty good, but they don't necessarily have that sort of like reputation. Like it's not Harvard or anything. But I think the 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 wife, as soon as she hears the name Illinois, she kind of immediately lights up and is, you know, <laughs> is kind of sold. It's kind of like. Uh... Do you lie big or do you do you uh, tongue lie down a bit so it's a bit more believable, more realistic? Yeah, so that comes down to the they're, they're it's this is not their first rodeo. They've done this before. They know exactly what lies to tell. Yeah, I, I love the way the sisters just like uh, I googled art therapy and then I improvise the rest. Which, like to me, she was the, the best character of them all because of her audaciousness. Yeah, another another funny scene is where um, they plan the how to get rid of the housekeeper mm. and Kevin is giving notes to his father but oh, in, a sort acting. Of, yeah. in a sort of a metatextual a metatextual way that's a young relatively unknown actor giving acting advice to Song Kang Ho uh, which I think again dial it down a bit dial it down <laughs> yeah, which is a, like funny for people who are more familiar with Korean cinema and would sort of like that is a sort of a funny juxtaposition and again, it gives the impression it's not their first rodeo. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But there's a really touching scene where Kevin's about to set off to meet the rich family and his father's just like, I'm proud of you. Yeah, but there's also, it's just like, it's funny how Song Kang, Mr. Kim, so Song Kang Ho's like instinct is to overplay the scene. Yeah. Like he's, he's <laughs> like, 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 just like emote the hell out of it. And the kid says, you're about here. And he puts his hand high, and I need you to be about here. And that's like you can imagine how like his generation grew up with like sort of like traditional Korean theater, where it's like extremely overexpressive and and uh, uh, not too dissimilar to the Japanese traditional theater and all those things. Well, yeah, no, it's just like that 
the sort of bond between the uh, Kim family really does uh, uh, humanize them a lot more and uh, makes them very sympathetic. So beyond the sort of like uh, comedy of them infiltrating um, the parks, you do have people you can root for. Yeah, and I think that's I think what I think saves this film for being I think more over the nose than it has to be because I think the characters, especially the Kims, are just so well done both from the writing point of view, from the and the acting point of view that I think my at least in my opinion, sort of like the maybe heavy-handed sort of like uh, treatment of class structures differences or maybe the overly naive depiction of of the of the parks in some cases i think is kind of outdone by how sympathetic everybody is and how uh their sort of interactions how genuine they feel in front of the camera mm. so yeah the the brother walks into the bathroom and rolls a bottle of water and the sister's like telepathy it's kind of like they've got that sort of uh sibling connection it's yeah very funny and then you have sort of like, you know, the, the entire climax of the scene, which is almost half the film is like amazing. So where you talk there in the house of the parks chilling and uh, the housekeeper shows up unexpectedly. And that kind of sets in motion almost a frantic series of events from from that scene. There's almost no. You, you gasp for breath for that entire like sequence from from them their interaction with the housekeeper to the revelation that there's someone in the basement to their fight to their, you know, like, like how the roles are reversed. They are the, they they have the hands up in the corner and then they sort of the attack, the, the, the housekeeper and her husband. And, and the, the other tragedy of what the husband has to see the housekeeper actually go through because there are like pictures on the wall depicting their relationship together and they're like a happily married couple. In the final moments in the film that we see of the housekeeper, she's doing her best to sort of give her husband um, something to work from. Like she, yeah, that's that was utterly tragic. Absolutely, absolutely. So yeah, there's the relationship in this film are absolutely brilliantly done. And then again, there's no pause. We have the we have the the parks come back unexpected, and now they have to fight. And then after that, there's no pause either. The 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 father, the daughter, and the son go back home, somehow manage to escape, and uh, they find that there's been a rain. And there's the, the whole it's been raining the whole time, but you kind of don't notice it. It's kind of like, you know, like a sort of like just background noise. And of course, it kind of comes to the foreground where their entire house is essentially overflown with water and sewage water. If Watching it a second time, I, I did have a, a sort of criticism. First, that they would be so open in using the park's home, because... Like, if you've been newly employed, like, you'd have to be very naive not to think that the owners of the house would have, would not have cameras or anything. I, I would be that's, super that's, suspicious. That's true. I think I, I agree with that. It seems especially, not only that, but I mean, the, the, uh, their mom was the last person to be hired. And we, I think we get the impression that they've just hired her. She hasn't been there for that long. Yeah. So, so that they would leave her in charge of the house alone. So close is uh, is a bit. I think it takes a little bit of like suspending your disbelief, and that whole scene. Yeah, so the cameras and they, there is mention of the cameras that they have outside CCTVs, and the housekeeper says I've disabled them or whatnot, uh, which actually ends up coming back in the end when Mister Kim hides after he murders Mister Park. 
Yeah, uh, because the camera has been disabled and nobody bothered to enable it. Of course, nobody bothered because the whole thing is happening in less than twenty-four hours. So it's even though it feels so long because so many things happen. But another another criticism I have is like if you if they've been living in this working class area, then they should know that it actually floods regularly. So, like if they're aware that rain's going to be falling, it's going to be falling for a long time. At least one of them would have to go back home to sort of like um. I save as many items as possible. Yeah, I mean, I I agree, but I think I just didn't bother me as much because it's like you know, it's it's something that requires you to kind of suspend your disbelief a little bit more than usual. But it's something that I'm happy to do because it's you know, it's it's essentially. I mean, he has to get the story from point A to B, and that's yeah. and you know, I'm I'm willing to kind of let that go because it it's 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 easy enough. But I agree with you that it is. It is something that just feels a little bit artificial, but a bit too convenient, in my opinion. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, I would say the same thing for, you know, finding the underwear in the car. I mean, it's, you know, of course, we don't know how much time, it, maybe a lot of time has passed since the daughter put her underwear in the car and Mr. Park finds them. But it's, mm. uh, it's uh, I mean, you know, you can believe that he would eventually would, but oh, there's also very likely that the, someone else would have probably found them before that. Well, chauffeur's clearly not cleaning the car properly. No, yeah, ex- exactly. So you'd think that they would, and the car does look actually quite clean. So again, but it's, it's the kind of thing that, yeah, whatever. They had to, they have to, some way to get from here to here. So I'm willing to let that one go. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, uh, I mean, there's, there's obviously a lot of things to talk about this film, and, and, uh, uh, and we can, we can all come back to it. But I would also like to say about the, sort of awards that it won and whether, you know, were you surprised at the time and do you think it deserved the award that it won? And do you specifically, do you think this deserved to kind of break the barrier of non foreign films winning a domestic category in the Oscars? Well, well, Trump would disagree with that. Uh, he was absolutely furious <laughs> with uh, Parasite. I don't think he. I don't think he cared that much. It was just like a talking point. But anyway, go on. Um, yeah, like you, like it, you called it a perfect film, and I wouldn't disagree with that. I think it's an incredibly well made film. Like uh, second time viewing of it, it's like really great foreshadowing, a really great story structure, um, great um, characters, uh, and great acting. And um, I think uh, looking at the sort of landscape of Asian films at the time, um, it's probably like the strongest Korean film that was released in 2019. Um, in terms of winning, like, uh, you know, when you look at other titles from 2019, you had um, The Gangster, The Cop, The Devil, um, Zombie, uh, The Odd Family, Zombie for Sale. Uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, 2018. What films do we have in 2018? Uh, Burning was, I think, 2018. Yeah, Burning, House of Hummingbird, The Witch. So it's kind of like, it feels like it was, um, and 2017, you had Okia, which is Bong Jun Ho, Villainess, and 2016, you had Train to Busan and The Wailing. So it feels like all these really, really good films are laying a path down to, like, Parasite. Um, coming onto the scene, but I think they also benefited from like K-pop, like the group BTS, topping the Billboard charts in those years, and also like big social media campaign. Everybody in social media got behind it. 
So it's like the right film at the right time. Are you aware of whether or not that was a concerted effort from the producer? It was just kind of a word of mouth phenomenon. I feel like it's the right film at the right time. And Neon, uh, I think the distributors of Neon, uh, they took advantage of that social media um, word of mouth campaign to keep building it up over the award season. Yeah. So I'm kind of, I'm, I'm looking at, I, I, I've forgotten most of what I wrote for the review for this, but I think I, I do say, uh, I'm looking at it now, and I do say that it is nearly a flawless film. And I, I, it, I am shocked that three years later, I'm watching it and it, all of that is still true. And of course, I'm, I say what I just said, that I think what makes this film shy away from perfection is its lack of nuance in social commentary. There's no subtext, only text. I'm just reading now. Uh, and I'm comparing it to high and low because I don't know why I, I like high and low a little bit better. But <laughs> but I I agree that there's no doubt that this film deserved the awards that it won. Uh, I, however, I still don't understand why it was as popular as it was. And I think probably has to do with what you said, it being the right place at the right time. Because it's not... I mean, we both have seen many Korean films. We've seen many Japanese films. There are many films that have released slightly before or slightly after Parasite that, you know, had sort of like that popular, that had the potential for a popular appeal, yet none of them achieved it quite as well as Parasite. And I, and I am a bit befuddled by why that is. You know, why this film? Why Parasite? It's not, it's a fantastic film, but it's not the only fantastic film. And I will extend that sort of like surprise to the Oscars. There have been many amazing foreign films throughout, you know, let's say the last 30 years that, you know, arguably deserve that best picture, best director domination. But why Parasite? Why break that line with Parasite? And I don't know that I have a good answer for that. So, and I, I also will actually also maybe go for a step further and say that I, I would have been okay with them like drawing the hard line in the sand saying, okay, no foreign films in this category. Like, I'm okay with that because, you know, every country has their own has their own awards. And it feels to me there's a certain degree of arbitrariness to say, okay, Parasite, for some reason, gets to break that barrier. And I just, I don't know why. Well, all, like, it's, it's, an, uh, it's, a, it's a film with so many exquisite elements to it. And um, people but it's not can... the only film with so many exquisite elements. I mean, there's been many films with so many exquisite elements. But you look at the films that it was up against at the time, like um, The Irishman was upon a time in Hollywood, 1917, Joker, Marriage Story, Jojo Rabbit. I think um, people can enjoy many more different aspects to um, Parasite than, like, say, something like Paul vs. Ferrari, all those aforementioned films. There's something new and fresh about it, too. For many people, this must have been their first experience with Korean films and sort of like, it's a totally different register uh, in terms of like um, the context it's taking place in, which is uh, people can understand like universal themes such as rich versus poor, but uh, you've also got like uh, the extent to which like violence might be used, um, and also like talking about class as well. I think we it was we were coming into an age where like people were very much um, talking about issues of class especially with joker like big thing about that was like um in the film it shows what happens when you take away um public health uh you so get why, crazy why, why not joker joker then 
Uh, uh, Joker. I, don't, I, don't, I mean, Joker is not a not as good a film as a as Parasite. Nowhere near as good. But uh, this this not as much nuance to it, and also it's a comic book film. So yeah, so there's there's that bias. But again, there's sort of like the Parasite veers too close on the horror side, and the Academy also has a bias on the horror films. Uh, I don't think any have ever been. Maybe The Silence of the Lambs is uh, an exception to that. I think uh, different audiences read different things into it because I've seen people try and claim that Parasite isn't sort of um, critical of capitalism so much as it's like a, a diatribe against communism. So you've got many different people able to sort of enjoy it from different perspectives. Yeah, I think so. Full disclosure, I would have picked The Irishman that year, uh, but I think the Academy also has a bias towards, uh, at least at the time, had a bias towards streaming services. I think there was still. I think the pandemic completely put a stop to that. Uh, after the pandemic, all when all the theaters closed down, nobody cared anymore. But I think at the time there was still this very much that does something produced for and by Netflix deserve to win Best Picture. And I think Bong Joon Ho spoke very highly of The Irishman at the time, and I don't think he ever said. Obviously, he wouldn't that it deserved, but I think he thought The Irishman would win. That that's my. Uh, a wild guess <laughs> from reading like sort of like uh, interviews with him he seems like really starstruck that he met Martin Scorsese like three times within four days and he was so happy to get a letter from him he even said you know everybody should uh, should uh, watch this on the theaters said that at least on a couple of interviews about so for him to talk about another film while campaigning for his own Oscar that's why I'm saying I, I do think he personally thought that the Irishman would win. I don't know that he thought the Irishman deserved to win. Probably he thought his film deserved to win, although he, maybe he didn't expect it. But uh, but I don't know. Again, I'm not. This is not at all me making the case that it didn't deserve to win. But it's it's the case. It's the arbitrariness that I don't quite understand. That it's not. You know, since the '90s, there have been many foreign films that arguably have been better than any American release of the year. But there was always this sort of like barrier that okay. The foreign films have the foreign category, but the Oscars are an American award, so so or an English language award, so an English language film should theoretically win. And I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm okay with that. I'm okay with that distinction because every country has their own awards. Obviously, if you if you remove the rules, then what's the point of having awards in the first place? And if you're gonna and if you're gonna open it to Parasite, there's so many more films that you should open it to. But we didn't see that. We saw that you know maybe one film, one foreign film gets to make. To make it, if if at all, even in the subsec in the subsequent uh, Oscars, so that's that's what I'm getting. If you're going to open it to one film, then you might as well open it to the entire world. But that clearly hasn't happened, and I don't think it's it will happen. Well, I guess that's a uh, right film at the right time, and also a tribute to the sort of Oscar campaign that was run uh, by the company distributing it in America. That's right. So I think I do think that that's like you know, didn't break only this film didn't break only award records. It also broke box office records. So I think it was the second highest Korean grossing film worldwide, or maybe the highest Korean grossing film worldwide. Uh, I forget one of those. But it, I think I think I'm, I'm again I'm I'm going off my review at the time that I wrote this review, which was November 2019. It had grossed 120 million worldwide. And it went on to do a lot more than that after its award-winning uh, sort of streak. So, so it's definitely not just critically, and but it was popular, po popular sort of things for for a movie that again 
it's I am a bit surprised that it appealed to so many people, but perhaps I think I am perhaps sort of like I think my dismay is a little bit has a little bit to do with okay, in a world where the highest grossing movies are superhero movies, how can Parasite sort of like break that? How can Parasite sort of like survive into that world? Again, that's I guess that's and I perhaps there is something that I'm not seeing here that or perhaps Parasite is proving that, you know, there are other ways to make high grossing films that don't involve men in tights uh jumping around buildings. Well, I that's just it. It's kind of like, what was it? I think Snowpiercer had a budget of like $40 million, which is a high for Korean film. And then Bong But it was, it was an international co-production. I think it was a, uh, it was a Korean film shot in uh, Hungary. So, and, uh, yeah, he went to a $19 million film, which has so many ingenious, uh, sublime parts to it that it could appeal to a wide audience. So it shows that there's a possibility of, you know, making films to uh, top the charts that aren't superhero movies. You just have to get the right formula. Yeah, uh, and I just want to say that, I mean, of course, movie budgets are not equivalent across countries. Like a $19 million film in South Korea gets you a lot further than $19 million in Hollywood. So it's it. I don't. I, I don't. I'm. I'm just guessing. It's probably more equivalent to a fifty dollar, fifty million dollar budget in Hollywood, or a forty million dollar budget in Hollywood. I mean, it's not the same sort of caliber of, of how things cost. And it's also not just that, but the filmmaking process is very different. I mean, in in Hollywood, Bong Joon Ho doesn't have the the freedom to do whatever he wants, whereas in Korea, he has is pretty much the uh, dictator of his own set. Well, that's like one of the things uh, with Snowpiercer was he said he had complete freedom to do what he wanted. And uh, he found it funny that um, for like Snowpiercer having someone like um, Chris Evans was like a huge thing. But then Chris Evans would go into um, interviews and say he's doing a small movie called um, Snowpiercer. <laughs> well, for him, it was. I'm sure he wasn't being paid his usual rate. I, I... I'm sure that $40 million budget, it, a lot of it went to him, but probably still not what he spaded at an Avengers movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I, I remember sort of, and I, I don't think, Bong Joon-ho got lucky, both with that and with Ogja, uh, but I don't think Park Chan-wook and uh, Lee... Uh, Kim Ji-woon? Kim because... Ji-woon. I don't think they had the same luck. I think they probably didn't like Hollywood as much as Bong Joon-ho did. Bong well, Joon-ho. Yeah. This this was like uh, all three of them made like films deliberately to appeal to international audiences at the same time. It's like Park Chan came up with Stoker, and Kim Ji Woon came up with Last Stand, and um, they're just not as good as Snowpiercer. They Would, didn't yeah, have that penetration. No, but I will say uh, uh, Stoker, I forgettable. I I don't know. I, I you know not not a bad film, but also nothing compared to the caliber that Park Chan Wook. Is able to deliver, but uh, last the last stand, not great movie, a very fun movie. Yeah, yeah, a very thoroughly enjoyable. Now again, not forgettable, but while you uh, before you forget it, you get to enjoy it a whole lot. Um, and uh, oh, another <laughs> another thing when you mentioned uh, when you mentioned uh, in the beginning how it was uh, Parasite was the first Korean film to win the Palme d'Or, the first thought that popped into my mind was, yeah, but not the first one to deserve it, because I still maintain that <laughs> Old Boy should have won the Palme d'Or instead of uh, Fair Night 
11 and uh, 9 11 which is you know a, a nice documentary but i don't think it's and it was you know it was there were political reasons why it was awarded the palm d'or and maybe those political reasons were just at the time but i think in the in the grand scheme of history old boy is is the far better movie yeah far better cinema product yeah. yes that's another thing we can blame george w bush <laughs> yeah, 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 of course. I don't know. I mean, I think Fahrenheit 9-11 would have been a fine without the Palm d'Or. It would have had the same impact, would have probably still won the Oscars, which it did. So I don't, I don't know that it really even needed to compete there, but A, it's the French. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, just to uh, move on from this, looking at, uh, like, the... Korean film awards that it won, uh, Blue Dragon Awards. It won Best Film, Best Director, Best Actress um, for Cho Yong Jong, the Park family's mother, and Best Supporting Actress for Lee Jung Yun, the housekeeper, and Best Art Design. And at the Grand Bell Awards, it won Best Film, Best Director, Best Supporting Actress for Lee Jung Yun, the housekeeper again, uh, Best Screenplay for Bong Joon Ho and Han Ji Won. And best music for Jung Chai. Yeah, and I'm also looking at the Korean competition at the time, and I think you mentioned a few. And I think the only one that maybe uh, was somewhat on the radar in terms of international appeal was uh, the the gangster, the cop, and the devil. Right? Which was that like a genre of uh, yeah detective serial killer thriller? Yeah, which I haven't seen, but I've read that it is you know, has been well regarded. It's it's a lot of fun. Just uh like uh the actor's name is it Ma Dong, the really big hulking dude from Trade. I forget, Peace. I forget. But that that one but otherwise, you know, I don't think twenty nineteen had a big impact in terms of Korean cinema other than Parasite. I think the old family zombie for sale has, uh like it's got a sort of cult fan base, at least in the UK. And uh, Kim Ji Young, born nineteen eighty two. Um, I haven't watched it. It seems like a politically worthwhile film because it's like the state of like uh, the treatment of women in South Korea. Yeah, but I, I don't think there's any chance of that appealing to international audiences. No, no. Like this again. This was like Parasite. Just happened to be amidst like the best film out of all of these really good films. And like the Korean film industry's had this really great run, and Parasite. Was the best film, and it was in the right place at the right time. So, uh, sorry, I'm going to put you on the spot again with another sort of a question, comparing uh, with of comparison. But we had ending with Parasite. We had three years in a row, three very influential influential Asian films that's explicitly or implicitly deal with class. We had 2017 The Shoplifters, we had 2018 Burning, and we had 2019 Parasite. So which, how would you rate those three? How would you compare them and which one is your favorite and which one do you think does the more effective job in, in sort of like dealing with the subject matter? That's a very difficult question to answer, actually. That, that's why I apologize for putting you on the spot. That I would rank you, you don't have to. Parasites. I mean, you don't have to have a good reason for liking any of them more or less. You know, just your gut reaction. Parasite, Parasite and Burning, like joint number one. Shoplifters, um, as good it is as it is, it's just feels like Corrida sort of, um, synthesizing all of his usual sort of, um, uh, subject matter, 
Um, he gets, gets a great performance from Sakura Ando, but I think he's been more effective in films like Nobody Knows. I, I, yes, I would agree with that, yeah. Yeah, Burning, um, and par- like Burning's pro- Burning probably offers a much more nuanced portrait of the rich than Parasite does, and it also, um, a lot more ambiguity, uh, because it, it goes into sort of literary territory where you suddenly discover, oh, it might not be as black and white as the main character is, uh, is it portraying it. Perhaps he's an unreliable narrator, and that's a really great hook for the second half of the film. And, um, is it Stephen Yeun? The actor, yes, yeah, well, the 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 rich guy, yeah, yeah, he's he's absolutely fantastic in it. Like, uh, really hard to read, but there's something about him that seems off, and it's not just because he's like uh, a, a Korean American um, in Seoul playing around. Uh, Parasite is a lot more fun, though. I think you can go through the entire movie laughing up until like the twist, and then it's just shock and gasp. Uh, to the finale. So yeah, Parasite and uh, Burning would be uh, number one. I think uh, Parasite probably um, is the easier one to read sort of um, issues of class into because like you said, uh, Bong Joon-ho's pretty on the nose of it. So yeah, and I, I would say the same thing. My, like, I think I made this point before. I've I, I've never been that much into Koreeda. I think he's a great filmmaker, but just personally, I think never never appealed to me. And Shoplifters is... I think an interesting movie. I think it does make some very excellent points about class, but uh, I think as a film, it's perhaps not the best of the three. I do think that Burning is, I think, both the more interesting film in terms of the nuance that it depicts sort of class issues in addition to even, I think, even national political issues in the film. And I, as I've made it abundantly clear... Uh, I I do appreciate nuance more than than sort of like explicit treatment of any subject matters. I do like the sort of like the symbolic approach, the the uh, underhanded approach, as opposed to sort of like being on the on the forefront of either the work of cinema or literature, either for either of those uh, or formats. And I do think also that because of the reasons something mentioned, I do think sort of like the in certain respects, Burning is also the better work of cinema. Because there's just something more interesting about the characters. There's something more interesting about how the actors sort of depict the character, the characters, and how Lee Chang Don directs them. But it's impossible to deny that Parasite is the funner movie, is the more fun movie to watch. And I think obviously that's why it it it's sort of Burning never made any strides because Merge, Mer, Burning is a bit of a is a bit of a thinker, just to to put it very crudely. Like you need to like work with it a little bit to get it. It's not an immediate appeal the same way that Parasite is, which is just, you know, it's uh, two hours of fun. There's no no other way of. There's not no part in the movie that that is to go slow or makes you kind of you know look away. It's you're constantly focused because every second on screen is just extremely enjoyable. But I think you know, in my sort of snob snobby film critic hat. I would say that burning is the better of the three. Well, again, like, look, why does it have that appeal? Why does it, why was it the film to break barriers? Like you said, um, and like I said as well, it's just much more enjoyable. You can, you can gather a bunch of people around and say, look, I got this great foreign film. If you're prepared to read subtitles, let's go. And everybody's going to be gasping and laughing. And, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, Parasite is a really good film. Yeah. And I think, um, um, Burning was even nominated 
I think he got he made it to the short list, but he was never nominated for an Oscar, I don't think, which is like insane to me. Yeah, what was the competition at the time? Yeah, I guess. But I think I, I, I said this for when I talked about Squid Game, that I said that it shouldn't be surprising that Squid Game is as popular as it is, because I think Netflix has put in the work. Netflix has been showing Korean dramas and Korean movies for years before Squid Game and sort of like it built its audience. And then when it finally released Squid Game, which had that sort of extra oomph, extra appeal, the audience was already there. And I think maybe that, to a certain extent, stands for Parasite. Yeah. Like the audience for Parasite was there. It was just not a theatrical audience, it was a streaming audience. But I think sort of like the word of mouth and the appeal, and of course, eventually Parasite did make it to streaming and it was popular there as well. I think the the work that Netflix and other streaming services have done sort of like popularize Asian dramas, especially Korean, but not only Korean. But yeah, also the K-pop audience. But the K-pop, K-pop, of course, that's, again, I think like 2019 was maybe the year where that kind of finally was to blow up. Yeah, 2000. 18, 2019, BTS had number one albums in the Billboard charts. Precisely. So I think that might have also been... It would, I, I, I said I attributed the success of Squid Game to that, but it also maybe we should move back a little bit and actually shift that to Parasite. And Squid Game is just a follow-up, an inevitable follow-up to what Parasite sort of like benefited from. I, it just goes to show, because this is... Like all of these successes have been part of a long campaign of like soft power that the Koreans have put in place since the late nineties to try and appeal to international audiences is really paying off in a way that like you don't see with Japanese film industry, which has taken its eye off the ball. Yeah. And I do think that Koreans had films of the quality of Parasite or even better as early as the early as the 2000s. I mean, we both saw, you know, we both really liked number three, right? That was a fantastic film, a very yeah. fun film as well. Obviously, I don't know what international appeal it would have had, maybe not so much, but from that on I to the early 2000s, Korea had films that would be worthy of like the success that Parasite had, Memories of Murder being one of them, but it just didn't have the influence, which is perhaps perhaps answers my question as to why it is Parasite. It was like, you know, why is it Parasite and not Memories of Murder? Or why is it Parasite and not Old Boy? Or why is it Parasite and not X movie that is equally good or even better than Parasite? And I think that's the answer, is that the Korean didn't have the soft power, uh, the influence through soft power that it had in 2019. Mm. Yeah, like the cul-de-sac of like entertainment has uh, broadened it into a, into a big boulevard now Thanks to the streaming services, more people are able to access music, dramas, and television, uh, and films, and it's just going to keep going. Absolutely, and I mean, you know, we're looking both looking forward to the next. We did mention that there are two major Korean uh, movies coming out: one from Park Chang Wook and one from a, you know, the aforementioned Koreeda. That I'm both, I'm looking forward for both to, to see. You know, Koreeda is probably, you know, not. I don't know if his movie would count as a, as a product of Korean cinema, even though he's using Korean actors. Perhaps, uh, most likely, he'll bring his own sensibilities into it. But it's still, I'm still looking forward to what he'll uh, he'll show with uh, what's the title of his movie called? Broker. Uh, yes, and what's the Park Chan Wook movie called? Um, uh, is it Ty- uh, Decision to Leave? Decision to Leave. That looked very interesting. I'm not going to lie. I'm looking forward to that a little bit more. 
Well, uh, news ahead of the Cannes Film Festival is that Neon, the guys that are handling, um, oh, the guys that handle Parasite, they've picked up the rights to Broker for North American distribution. Coretta is a fantastic film filmmaker. I don't care what marketing Neon does. I just don't see don't see it like kind of making the same uh, noise that uh, Parasite did. <laughs> I just, Based just don't on the see trailer. No. <laughs> I don't. I don't see Korea as that kind of filmmaker, which is fine. You know, we need those filmmakers. We need filmmakers that make this more understated, quiet films that you know are uh, offer a sort of like a different type of enjoyment and appreciation. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, so, what 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 else uh, do we uh, do we have to say about either Parasite the movie or sort of the context surrounding Parasite as a film uh, in 2019? So. There's going to be an American adaptation by Adam McKay, director of Don't Look Up, and it's uh, being handled by HBO. And uh, what he Film says or is TV. Uh, TV. It's an original series, so it's not an adaptation. It's an original series. It's in the same universe as the feature, but it's an original story that lives in the same world. But it's. it's I'm assuming it's not going to be set in Korea, is it? It's or is a, it? Is it like the the Germans that move into the house afterwards? It's maybe it's maybe based on them. Yeah, I thought they were Swiss because there's a Swiss flag on the Swiss. So you're right. Yeah, but they speak German. I think that's what he says. But yes, there's a Swiss flag somewhere in there. Yeah, like uh, no, uh, I'm not sure. Um, seems like uh, Bong Joon Ho's working on a number of scripts because he's got one in English, which is going to be set in America and London, and another one is set in Korea. Um. The, TV series. What do you mean related to the TV series or just other projects that he's involved with? Another project. Because ah. he's interested in expanding the world of par- the original Parasite by looking up what happened to the housekeeper because she went, she returns to the home, her face is bruised, so something's happened to her. Uh, he also wants to. Wait, ex- doesn't she die? Or, or what happens like between. Yeah, when she's kicked out and then when she returns. Oh, okay. I see. Yeah. Maybe she went through the Squid Game. She won the Squid Game and she came. She came back. That was like 20, less than twenty four hours. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Anyway, so please go on. And uh, yeah, he's um, talking about. He talked about a sequel. This was uh, where did I find this? This was in Cosmopolitan. Um, yeah, that was the one split into two versions: one Korean and one English. Uh, the Korean film is located in Seoul and has unique elements of horror and action. The English project is a drama based on a true event that happened in 2016, and it's half set in the UK and half set in the US. So, like the sequel to Parasite, you've got the TV spin-off with Adam McKay. I don't know if it's set in America or Korea. Probably set in America. Um, and uh, you've also got a possible spin-off, uh, looking at the original characters, what happened to them. Uh, during the original Parasites when they were on screen. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, it, I mean, the film ends so perfectly. I just, I mean, it's part of it, you know, the ambiguity, you know, it's just part of, I don't think you really need to say what happened next. Oh, what, the doctor that gave him the brain surgery, let's make a spinoff about him. <laughs> like, either, you know, you either invent a great story, which is might as well be a standalone story, or you just kind of like try to, cash in like do a cheap cash in on the character okay, i'm gonna pitch something to you now getting hit on the head by that rock uh awakened some abilities to um manipulate people with his voice and uh the cop it turns into a police procedural the cops investigating and uh 
finds out that the son uh, a, a psychic imprisons, detective? yeah, yeah, uh, uh, maybe a psychic detective, and uh, <laughs> the son imprisons people in the basement. <laughs> oh, 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 yeah. I'm surprised it took this long to kind of plan out spin-offs and sequels and and uh, same universe series for this one because it was you know a worldwide phenomenon. Yeah, it's. We'll see if any of these come to fruition, but there's at least a couple of years between each of Bong Joon-ho's projects. Yeah, usually. So, so I mean, I'm looking forward to his next movie, but I don't, I don't necessarily care for any Parasite, just like I don't care for, you know, the, the Snowpiercer adaptation series, which is apparently going on for three seasons now. But, um, yeah, his next movie is an animated feature about sea creatures, isn't it? Yeah, possibly. I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, I, I'm sure whatever he does, it will be interesting. I, you know, that I have no doubt about that. But but as for spin-offs, I don't know. So, yeah, Bong Joon-ho's top 10 uh, films in 2012. A City of Sadness, Cure, Fargo, The Housemaid, Psycho, Raging Bull, Touch of Evil, Vengeance is Mine, The Wages of Fear, and Zodiac. Oh, okay. Oh, I thought... Okay, I thought you said these top movies that came out that year. Oh, 2012. The greatest films of all time. Of all time, okay, okay. Uh, yeah, no, that means I, have you seen The Housemaid? I'm assuming he's referring to the original 1960 version. Yeah, and that was supposed to, I haven't seen it, but I read that it's an uh, influence on Parasite. Oh, it's a fantastic film. I, I, I can sort of see the influence, uh, a, a loose influence, because it is about... Uh, it's more of this sort of like straightforward moral story about getting involved with this, your 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 help, <laughs> uh, okay. but it's a, it's a really well done and visually very very interesting. But it's a fantastic film. If you can if you can get a copy, I recommend getting it because it's it's a great film. Okay, oh, Hunter Tang. Yeah, black and white nineteen sixty film. Sort of like kind of almost hard to believe that it is a Korean film from the time because it's just some of the techniques and some of sort of like the visual sort of like imagery is just so, so good. Yeah. Although maybe not because Japanese cinema was pretty advanced at the time. So I'm sure they use that as an influence. Yeah. Okay. So anything else that uh, you, you feel we should discuss? Uh, that's it really. All right. Okay. So um, what do you think we should do next? I think possibly angry crouching tiger, hidden dragon. Okay, I haven't seen that in years, and I remember the first when I watched it a long time ago. I, you know, I, I wasn't so so hot in it. So maybe my opinion will change. Maybe I'll, I'll like it a lot more. I, I honestly remember very little of it. I remember that I wasn't so. Uh, last time I forget when it was last time I watched. Uh, but I remember that it was a. No, I didn't like it very much. So this will be interesting to see how I'm gonna, I'm gonna say it now. So okay, so I think it's decided. Let's do Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon uh, for next episode. Okay. All right. So thank you very much for listening to Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. If you have any questions, suggestions, comments, concerns, please feel free to comment uh, at uh, heroic-purgatory.blogspot.com. Or you can also uh, reach us through Twitter uh, at Heroic Purgatory, all one word. Until then, we, very, we hope very much that you enjoyed the episode. Goodbye.